It's good to see everybody here this morning, those we've not seen for a while and those we see regularly. Um, we are all together at the start, and if small people need to move around, just let them do so. It's absolutely fine. We're going to hear some words from Psalm 29. Ascribe the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And so as we gather, we come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. God of mercy and grace, we have gathered together in the name of Christ and invoked the presence of your Spirit in order that we might worship you. We know that what we are doing is, in our nation, quite unusual. That many, maybe most people, would think it rather strange to meet, to sing, share and listen expecting that to make a difference to our everyday living. And mysteriously, in our gathering, we're connected to all the people who've tried to follow Jesus, all the people who have called themselves Christian, no matter where or when or how they understood their faith. That's too much for us to understand, and yet we trust that it is so that you are present among us and do hear our praises and our prayers. Loving God, we take a moment to recall how our week has been, the things that have been good that we want to say thank you for and the things that have been disappointing or causes of regret that we need to lay down. Thank you, God, that you wipe out our mistakes and let us begin afresh. That with you, there are no last chances, but always the gift of a new beginning. Thank you that you love us and want us to grow in faith and in grace, learning to be more like Jesus and working with him to bring your kingdom to completion. So please accept these, our prayers and with them ourselves. Amen. First reading comes from Isaiah, chapter 43 and verses 1 to 7. Israel, the Lord who created you, says, Do not be afraid, I will save you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through deep waters, I will be with you. Your troubles will not overwhelm you. When you pass through fire, you will not be burnt. The hard trials that come will not hurt you. For I am the Lord your God, the holy God of Israel, who saves you. I will give up Egypt to set you free. I will give up Ethiopia and Seba, 
I will give up the whole nations to save your life. Because you are precious to me and because I love you and give you honour, do not be afraid. I am with you. From the distant east and the furthest west, I will bring you your people home. I will tell the north to let them go and the south not to hold them back. Let my people return from distant lands, from every part of the world. They are my own people and I created them to bring me glory. New Testament from Luke. Luke 3. I'm not sure if I'm completely right here from verse 3. So John went throughout the whole territory of the river Jordan preaching. Turn away from your sins and be baptized and God will forgive your sins. As it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah. Someone is shouting in the desert, get the road ready for the Lord. Make a straight path for him to travel. And from verse 15. People's hopes began to rise and they began to wonder whether John might be the Messiah. So John said to all of them, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming who is much greater than I. I am not good enough even to untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He has his winnowing shovel with him to thresh out all the grain and gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn the chaff in a fire that never goes out. Verse 18. In many different ways, God preached the good news to the people and urged them to change their ways. Finally, verse 21. After all the people had been baptized, Jesus was also baptized. While he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit came down upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my own dear son, I am pleased with you. Amen. Do you like singing hymns in church, hymns and songs? It's something we don't even think about. We all will say which hymn book we prefer or don't, whether we prefer the words on the screen or on a piece of paper, whether we prefer to stand or sit. What we've forgotten, or probably didn't even know, is there was a time when, in actually most churches, people didn't sing hymns. They might have sung metrical psalms, but they didn't sing hymns at all. And for Baptists in the late 17th and early 18th century, the singing of hymns was a very thorny debate. Sometimes I think not a lot has changed. But I'm going to share with you, and I'm not going to sing it, for which you're going to be eternally grateful, a very early Baptist hymn by a guy called Benjamin Keach. Repentance, like a bucket is, to pump the water out. For leaky is our ship, alas, which makes us look about. I bet you'd really like to sing that, wouldn't you? No. It is utter doggerel. As a piece of hymnody, it is just nonsense. It's bad. Um, If you want to go and try singing it, you could try singing it to the tune of Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. And then you, like me, can suffer it going around your brain for a week. 
It's bad poetry, but it gives us a way of beginning to think about the topic that we are invited to look at today, which is repentance. I think the imagery of repentance as being like a bucket is actually quite interesting, especially linked as it is with his use of plural pronouns. He talks about us and our, not me and my. There is in this hymn a sense that we are all in it together, that it is our ship that is leaky, that it is somehow together that we could be overwhelmed by this flood. And what we're concerned about is with a collective process of hard work to stay afloat. This emphasis on process and a corporate commitment is a very long way from what I was taught about repentance as a young person, which was that it is entirely individual and personal and involved turning my back on certain allegedly dubious practices and walking in the opposite direction. Repentance, as I was taught it as a teenager, wasn't about turn. Um, And actually, as I thought about this week, I thought, that's a very strange image, because if you turn about turn, you go back where you've come from. You don't go forward. And I never thought about that when I was young, so I was clearly not very bright in those days. But what Keach sees, this isn't just a one-off decision that happens when you make your personal commitment to follow Christ, but it is ongoing and it's demanding and we do it together in community. I think he's got something there. I think he's got something that's useful for us to keep in mind, not just for the length of this sermon, but in our ongoing endeavours to live as disciples of Jesus. This week, I've pondered the topic and I've reread various articles about it. And I've been reminded how much words have a life of their own. I'm sure there are people here who've done far more study on linguistics and etymology than I ever have done. <coughs> but actually, we can discover or recover an awful lot if we look at how meaning is determined by interpretation and translation. So I thought I would start by looking up the etymology of the word repent. When I was learning to be a minister, um, there was a tutor who used to say they always groaned when somebody started their sermon by, I just checked the de- dictionary definition of this word because they always felt that was just so boring. I hope etymology is slightly less boring than just using a dictionary definition. Anybody know where the word repent comes from? Any idea what language it might emerge from? Latin is its ultimate root. Yeah? It actually came into, into British usage or English language usage around the 13th century from an old French word that could be translated as to feel regret. So that's a subtly different understanding, I think, from the way I was taught that repentance made. But Alison's absolutely right. That old French word comes from a Latin word Uh, which in its origins is linked to the origins of the word penal relating to punishment. So you can begin to see how we've come to line up the word repentance with punishment and about the avoidance of punishment or turning away from those things that could lead us to punishment. 
it's not surprising that so much theology has grown up that links atonement and salvation with avoiding being punished. But that is an incredibly long way from the Greek word that is used in the Gospel of Luke. That word is metanoia. Now, who's the Greek scholars here? There are people who've done bits of Greek, but they're all shaking their heads. Um, The medics, at least, will have a clue what meta means. Meta, beyond or after. So metastasis as beyond the place it started in terms of spread of cancer, for example. Um, Chemists have meta chemicals and things. So meta, which means after or beyond, and noeo, which means perception or understanding or the mind. So in this Greek word metanoia, there's nothing to do with avoiding being punished, but rather a suggestion that repentance is an act of the mind or the will, a conscious rethinking. It's after thinking, beyond understanding, in other words, after you've understood it, that then affects the attitudes and values that a person lives with. And I think that's a more creative way of understanding repentance, not as avoiding somebody giving us a good smacking, but as us learning to think differently and live in the light of that thought. It would be fair to say that it's not like I'm right and that one's wrong. There's value in both understandings. But actually, I think the metanoia one is perhaps a more helpful one for us today. And in fact, if you looked at the Hebrew words that um, come together to mean repentance, Hebrew is a very complicated language, which I never studied. It's actually two words together. Repentance in Hebrew combines a word which means sorrow with a word that means returning to God in an ongoing process. So there is something about the process in a properly understood Hebrew expression of repentance. But I do wonder... If over the years the church has got this understanding of repentance that's become rather distorted, a long way from what the scriptural understanding would be, exclusively centering on the personal avoidance of eternal damnation and ignoring the continued outworking in the whole of life and within a community setting. If I put it crudely, it does seem to me that sometimes repentance is reduced to a formula which, if expressed correctly, will give us direct entry to eternal bliss. But in the meantime, we can carry on being selfish and self-obsessed as long as we observe the visible and obvious social mores, or mores, as you're supposed to say it, of Christianity. And I'm not sure that really relates with what we hear in Scripture, much less about events, much less about precise forms of words, and a lot more about a process of hard work. So we move on to begin to thinking about Jesus' baptism. And I'm conscious in the rather fragmented way it was presented, which is my fault, and the lectionary's fault, not Ewan's, um, you might not have seen all of that so clearly um, this morning in Luke. But the story of Jesus' baptism by John intrigues and usually bewilders anybody who's prepared to engage with it. There is no doubt whatsoever that this is a really important story for Christians because it is described in all three synoptic gospels 
And the fourth gospel, John, alludes very strongly to it. I actually checked very carefully. John does not say that Jesus was baptised, but it's there in sort of between the lines. The hints are there. So why, why is this story so important that all four gospel writers think it should be there? What does it have to say to us about repentance, especially if we believe that Jesus had no need to repent, never mind be baptised by some mere human prophet? It's quite clear from Luke's gospel and indeed from all the other gospels that John was a preacher who attracted an enormous following. But he was pretty scary. He wasn't exactly a nice, gentle preacher that you go to and tell your woes. He sort of really did say it as he thought it. It's not good enough, he said, to be of the right racial origin or the right religious heritage. Unless your lifestyle and attitude are consistent with that, forget about it. And he called them some pretty rough names, didn't he? Accusing them of being like a brood of vipers, a load of snakes. And yet they came. So there must have been something about this man that was intriguing. Repentance, he said, it's not about the right words. It's not about just fulfilling the rituals. It's not about legalistically adhering to what the Torah says, or at least those bits of it you can remember and choose to focus on. It's about the whole of your life. And so people came and said, well, John, what does this mean for us? And Luke tells us that there were tax collectors and soldiers who came and asked these questions. What does it mean for me as a tax collector to repent? What does it mean for me as a soldier, um, this would be a Herodian soldier most likely rather than a Roman soldier, what does it mean for me as a soldier to repent? Because surely I'm doing it right, aren't I? Each of these people heard what John had to say to them and recognised that it had an ongoing implication for their life. And presumably, or at least I certainly hope so, they thought about it and then chose to be baptised. I hope this was no mere knee-jerk reaction and emotional carrying away of the moment, but actually they thought about it. There was this metanoia, the thinking through and deciding to move on. And we need to understand that in that culture, baptism was an enormous thing, really symbolic act that said, I am choosing to align myself with this person's teaching, with this movement, with this way of life. We need to remember that Jews were scared of water, terrified. Drowning was the worst possible way you could dry, die. So going into water was hugely significant. For a lot of Jews, baptism would have had a resonance with the passing of the Hebrew slaves through the Red Sea on their way out of Egypt into a life of freedom. So as you did this scary thing, as you went through the water and came out the other side, this was a new beginning, a new way of being, which would bring with it both challenge and responsibility. They would also know how things panned out for the Hebrews and that they didn't get it all right straight off and spent a long time wandering around before they were able to go to their new future and the promised land. So far from being a personal, individual highlight, this is about being incorporated 
into community. And of course, incorporated means becoming part of the body. Language that we use about the church as the body of Christ. So the proselytes, the converts, would be baptised into the name of a teacher or a leader within a movement saying, I am committed to this community and I will be accountable within it for my life. According to Luke's account, it does seem as if Jesus is at the back of the queue. Now, I don't know how many films you've watched about the life of Jesus, but actually he does always seem to be at the back of the queue in the way they portray it. No idea whether that's correct, but that's what it seems to be. It's almost as if all the good Jews have gone first and been baptised. And after them come the tax gatherers. And after them come the soldiers, who are the bad Jews. And then comes Jesus. So if you're looking at a kind of a hierarchy, that's interesting. Jesus comes to John, and John says, basically, well, what on earth is going on here? I don't need to baptise you, you should me this is the wrong way around Jesus says no no I'm going to be baptized by you and he's baptized not as somebody who needs to repent of personal sin not because he is complicit in some kind of communal or institutional sin but actually because he's choosing to self-identify with that process of transformation he is incorporated into our world to our struggles to our reality. That's part of the symbolism that goes on there. By being baptised, he says, I am part of this body seeking to live a transformed life. We are together in this process of redemption and transformation. And that's where I think Keech's image of the ship and the bucket um, is quite helpful. The idea that Jesus says, actually, do you know what? I'm in the boat with you Let me have that bucket and I'll help you to bail out the water. In Jesus, we meet a God who isn't completely remote, who's not a distant judge looking to zap wrongdoers, but a God who comes into our experience, into all the mess and muddle of real life, and helps us with the process of transformation. Maybe if we look at the story again, we find that, in fact, after giving it some thought, there is something new for us to discover about the role of God, not just in redemption as an event, but also about its transformative work in the ongoing redemption of all things. I think this idea of a God present with us in the outworking of faith and the messiness of life is expressed especially beautifully in the poetry of Isaiah 43, which we have heard and, in fact, we have sung. There's no need to be afraid, says God, because I have done all that is needful to redeem and rescue you, and I'm always with you. Very often, this passage, like many other Old Testament promises, has become misinterpreted as a result of our translation into English. We hear the words and we hear them spoken to us as individuals. As if what the prophet is saying is, do not be afraid, Jen, I've redeemed you. Do not be afraid, Leanne, because I will be with you. Do not be afraid, Walter, it's you. 
Now, I think there is a sense that that's true, but it's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew is always plural. And the wider context makes it very clear that he's not addressing this promise to one person as if it's theirs exclusively, but to the whole people. Do not be afraid, Israel. Do not be afraid, Hillhead Baptist Church, because I am with you. And when you go through the struggles, not if, when, when you go through the struggles, I'm going to be there with you. When it feels like you're all at sea, I'm not going to let you drown. When it feels like everything's on fire and burning, I'm there sharing that struggle with you. The promise of redemption, rescue and accompaniment is quite clearly at a communal level. It's not me who will be rescued as if I'm the most important person ever. It is us who will experience that. And I think that's important to remember that we are in this together and we can't define ourselves apart from one another. This old definition of a Baptist church that I bore you with from time to time of a covenanted community of baptised believers. A belief that baptism is a really important sign of a freely chosen self-identification with Christ and commitment to Christ. And that in that, as well as being very important for us individually, it symbolises our incorporation literally into the body that is the church in all times and in all places, but specifically here and now. And if we believe that, then our lives become inextricably interlinked. And we can't think just at an individual level. I can't just think, well, this is what I want. This is what I think God is calling us to do and be. Because I am part of you, and you are part of me, and we are part of one another. And God may be speaking in and through any or all of us at one time or at other times. The traditional Baptist concept of a covenanted membership is a profound expression of that commitment. And the words the early Baptists used, I think, are good for us to remember. This promise to walk together with God in ways known and to be made known. That doesn't mean there are never questions to ask about what any of that means. It doesn't mean that we have to just blithely carry on doing what Baptists have always done. It certainly doesn't mean we need to sing Keach's hymns, for which we'll be very grateful. But actually, there was something those early Baptists had, a sense of community and corporate commitment that perhaps has something to say to us. So let's just go back to where we began and this idea of repentance. We are reminded it starts with us thinking, thinking carefully about our attitudes and our actions, especially the way that that affects our relationships and interactions with other people. Could it be that repentance has got less to do with personal piety and more about corporate responsibility as together we reflect on the implications of what we do? 
And might it just be that there is some merit in trying to hold together the promise of Isaiah, that Isaiah gives us of God's presence with us in and through the storms of life that threaten to overwhelm us, overwhelm us with the reality that repentance is ongoing. Perhaps not so different from bailing the water out of a little boat on a stormy sea. Repentance, like a bucket is, to pump the water out. For leaky is our ship, alas, which makes us look about or think again. In our prayers for others, um, we're going to be using the words of the hymn that we've just sung. And if you find it helpful, you might want to keep your hymn book open at that page. 523 in Baptist Praise and Worship. When we pray, we are reminded who we are and whose we are and what our true purpose is. So let us pray. Father, hear the prayer we offer. Not for ease that prayer shall be, but for strength that we may ever live our lives courageously. Adventurous God, who calls each one of us to join you in your great enterprise of salvation, we pray for today for those whose courage has failed. For those who have been worn down by the challenges of living and have simply given up or have disengaged, we know intuitively what you ask of us but sometimes we lack the courage to respond. However tempting it may be, we do not pray for ease, but for something infinitely better, for the strength that comes from the assurance of your presence deep within each one of us, and from the knowledge that nothing can ever separate us from your love. Fill us again with your spirit of adventure and lead us on safe in the knowledge that we are never alone. Not forever in green pastures do we ask our way to be, but the steep and rugged pathway may we tread rejoicingly. Generous God, who gives us good things and calls us to share those gifts with others, we pray for those who can can find nothing to be thankful for, whose vision of your wonderful world has been blurred by disappointment or rejection, or the limitations of ill health or overwhelming family responsibilities. It is hard to rejoice when the future seems to promise only greater struggle and more pain. May we be reminded again that you, Lord, feel our pain and share our grief. 
contradict our cares with your compassion and show us that gratitude offered when hope seems a fiction is a conscious decision that despair will not win. May we find personal peace to face the darkest of days and trust that your love is stronger than anything we may have to face, even death itself. Not forever by still waters would we idly rest and stay, but would smite the living fountains from the rocks along our way. Companion God, who calls us to travel with you through good times and bad, we pray for those who cannot seem to find the resources they need to face the road ahead. For those who search for you in times of hardship, but cannot find you, in the dark places of life and to long for the comfort of your presence. May we discover that you can be more real to us in a time of difficulty than at any other, closer even than our next breath and that the hardest of circumstances in your company can have more meaning than the easiest of lives without you. Be our strength in hours of weakness. In our wanderings, be our guide. Through endeavour, failure, danger. Saviour, be there that our side. God, who is the way, we pray for those who have lost their bearings, who no longer know which way to turn or where lives are headed. Perhaps we set out with great enthusiasm to follow you, but we have met with failure of the, as the years have passed. Perhaps we have seen treasured plans come to nothing or hard-won relationships break down. Especially, we pray for your church, which tries so hard to follow you, but fails over and over again. May your spirit reach deeper than our inertia and our fear, and release us into the freedom of the true children of God. God of trust and God of tears. Give strength to our prayers and hear our thanks for all you are, for all you do, and all you give us to help us in our lives. And we continue in our prayers in the giving of an offering. Lead us onwards, God of life, as people who seek to align ourselves with your way. Lead us onwards to learn from one another and work together in your service. 
Lead us onwards in grace, humility and gentleness, this day and each new day. Thank you.